Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and just the abundance that you have demonstrated in so many ways and so many times. And uh, Lord, we just want to sit here and hear from you. So have your way with us, Lord, please. Guide us and lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Lord willing, today we read 16 and 17. Can I warn at a little bit in advance, 16 is a little bit of a PG-13 chapter. Is that right? So you're already here. It's not like you're going to get up and leave. Um, but if you want to get up and leave, that's fine too. It wouldn't be the first time. But these chapters are the second and third of three sort of uh, word pictures that the Lord gives us. Uh, regarding the people, the people of uh, Judah, the what he calls the rebellious house of Judah. Again, Ezekiel's in Babylon and he's in captivity, um, and uh, he was taken in 597 BC in the second of three conquests by Babylon uh, on Jerusalem and Judah, and he's in this sort of transitional phase. Like, is Babylon going to finish conquering, or are we going to get the land back? And uh, the reality is Babylon's going to finish conquering, and it's because of their unfaithfulness, and he's trying to get the point across. He's done it by lots of creative ways uh, that the Lord has used. And so the first one, chapter 15, we read last week, was the unfruitful uh, vine wood, you know, the the grape wood. And we talked about this. A, A grape branch is good for what? Making grapes. Beyond that, when it's not, and John chapter 15 gives us the New Testament corollary of this, right? He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The branches, apart from the vine, you don't use them to build furniture. You can't, they really don't even make good firewood. They're worthless apart from being connected, or John, I like the word he uses, abiding in the vine, okay? That's chapter 15. We covered that last week. So today we do 16 and 17. 16 speaks of a a parable of an unfaithful wife, and 17 speaks of a parable of another uh, unfruitful plant, okay? So, as we move into 16, the parable of the unfaithful wife, I want to just say, first of all, this is a difficult subject. Um, God describes uh, the nation of Judah as basically an adulteress. And I want to say, just as a disclaimer, that that's a painful experience, um, really, for everyone involved. And I don't want to uh, presume uh, that there aren't people here that have experienced that pain. And so, as I say that, I just want us to keep in mind, as sort of a backdrop for everything, God's grace is God's grace. God's grace doesn't cover like when you hit your hand with a hammer and cuss. Although it does that, right? But it's not like it only does that, right? It doesn't just cover like when I get irritated or have a bad attitude, right? God's grace, and it's hard for us to understand this because we're humans, 
and we like to grade people. God's grace truly is God's grace, okay? So if that's any part of anybody in the sound of my voice's history or anything like that, please know that God's grace is God's grace. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, most of the things, the easy stuff becomes new. Is that what it says? No. Behold, all things become new. All things become new, right? And so God's grace is God's grace. I feel like I have to give that disclaimer. However, having said that, it's a painful experience, right? And imagine the heart of God. Turn back to Ezekiel chapter 6 that we read a few weeks ago. This is an amazing chapter, amazing verse to me. Chapter 6, verse 9, the second half of verse 9. God says, Then those who, of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. That's what Ezekiel is. Because, look at this, I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me. You get this? God is relational. God is supremely relational with his children. We don't worship a religious system. We don't worship a denomination. We don't worship a non-denomination. We worship a relational God who wants to be our daddy, our Abba Father, who wants to, uh, you know, as, as, as parents, you want your kids to, you, you want to be needed, right? I mean, one of the, well, I won't go off, but one of the things about children growing up, right, is they don't need you quite in the same way as when you're changing their diapers, right? And God, imagine God Almighty wanting to be just loved by his children. That's all, that's all he asks. And his heart can be crushed. How does the heart of God Almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, how does his heart become vulnerable enough that a human being can crush his heart by rejecting his love. That's amazing. It's amazing that God would make himself vulnerable in that way. But somehow, he does. He does. So when we act like anything, catch this, when we act or live like anything is more important than fellowship with him, we're crushing his heart. We have the capacity to crush the heart of God by rejecting him. We have the capacity to crush the heart of God by rejecting Him. And I believe we can even do it in subtle ways by living life like He's just a piece of what I do. He's just a piece of who I am. No, He's God. He's God. Fair enough? So that sets us up for uh, chapter 16. Chapter 16, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And so the setting here, now he's talking about Jerusalem, like the place where you live. And keep in mind, we've talked about this before, I'll say it again, the Jewish mindset of the day was very religiously pompous, right? There's like 
us superior Jews, and then there's the rest of the scumbag Gentile world. Now, we would never do an ad- have an attitude like that as Christians, right? We would never, like, describe any kind of distinction between us and the heathen world, right? We always do that. And they did that. They were no different. That's part of the human condition. But he kind of, he, he kind of points out this. By the way, you think the Gentiles are scumbags? Let's go back to your history. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother was a Hittite. Those are Gentile nations, right? You came from scumbag bloodlines, right? So if you think they're scumbags, they're not, because all are saved by grace, right? God's love extends to everyone. But don't think that you're superior to them is the point God is making to them. They were not superior in any way. As for your nativity, you know, i.e. your birth, as for your nativity, you know, nation of Israel, nation of Judah, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of the things of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were, bl- were loathed on the day you were born. So God is giving the Jewish people, and I believe us, this parable. He says, you know, Jewish nation, you guys that are think, you think you're so pompous, first of all, you came from uh, bloodlines that were Amorite and Hittite. You know, at least Jerusalem was inhabited by those people. So spiritually speaking, that's what he's saying. But by the way, when you, the nation of Israel, were born, you were like a baby still attached to the placenta that was like just left in the field. Now, if you've ever been around the birth of a baby, right? The baby's born. There's a very... uh, well-orchestrated symphony of activity that goes on immediately, right? The baby's got to get caught, the cord's got to get clamped, the blah, 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 and then the, you know, um, well, just a lot of stuff happens. (laughs) And it's very intentional, it's very deliberate, and it's designed to reduce the risk of anything bad happening or the baby getting cold. I mean, the baby's very temperature sensitive among everything else, right? And got to get cleaned off, and, you know, there's all that white goo, right? I'm a doctor. It's called goo. White goo is all over the baby, right? And frankly, it's, you know, when you see those pictures of like a newborn baby, let me just say, he's been cleaned off, right? Right? And so, you know, God's saying, no, you're not like that. You're like some kid that got discarded, not even separated from the placenta, right? That's the image God's given. That's their heritage. You know, their origins were way beyond humble beginnings. Their origins were, and again, God's telling them this because they're pompous. Their origins were, they were discarded, right? So much of who we are like it or not, is kind of, I mean, 
the family we're born in, the nation we're born in, the time history we're born in. I mean, you know, God's grace can fix any unfavorable situation or anything like that. So we understand that. But we also understand that, you know, just the fact that we were born in the time and place that we were, that kind of affects who we are. Well, for the Jewish nation, God is saying, you know, hey, you guys were like born discarded. Not even, not even noticed. No compassion, no swaddling cloths, not even, not even cut your cord. Verse 6, And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. Live. He says that twice. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. All right? So, this discarded baby, not even separated, not even separated from its placenta, no care given, no compassion, no anything just discarded and abandoned, God notices that baby. God not only notices that baby, God causes that baby to live. God not only causes that baby to live, God causes that baby to thrive. God not only causes that baby to thrive, God causes that that baby to grow up and mature into a beautiful woman. Right? Now, Anybody like a good romance movie? Raise your hand. Guys, come on, admit it. Come on. Seriously? Good romance movie, right? We watched Anne of Avonlea last night till 11 o'clock, right? So if my kids are asleep, I'm cutting them some slack because I wanted to watch the movie, right? And uh, raise your hand if you watched Anne of Avonlea. I asked one guy this morning if he's ever seen it. He laughed at me. (laughs) He'd rather watch a movie like where aliens come from some other planet and destroy the world. But anyway, so I'm, don't mind me, I'm just watching something about life. And and anyway, so at the end, at 11 o'clock, I'm like, all right, everybody sit down. We're going to debrief the life life lessons in this movie. (laughs) It was too good to just go to bed, right? It was too good. Now, those of us who can appreciate romance movies, and if you can't, ask your wife. There's a certain sort of genre of romance movies. We would call them Cinderella stories. Everybody understand what I'm talking about? Cinderella stories. And those of you who don't, Appreciate romance movies? Just think of, like, March Madness basketball. We like Cinderella stories. Okay? So somewhere in a, along the line, somebody's going to resonate with my, with my metaphors. Right? The Cinderella story, what's the essence of a Cinderella story? There's, like, this poor, downtrodden, usually woman, that's noticed by some rich, dashing, royal prince, dude, who all of us guys really 
just don't like, but we tolerate him. Right? And what is the, how does the story go? He notices her just for like no apparent reason. Not because of her money or, I mean, she's probably beautiful, but anyway, you know what I mean. Right? And he, and they sort of live happily ever after. And in the process of time, he usually has some character flaw, like he's insensitive, right? Because it's easy to write that into the script. And he overcomes that character flaw as he demonstrates love for this otherwise pitiful young woman. Everybody got that storyline? You understand that? You could probably think of five movies off the top of your head that follow that storyline, right? Why do we as human beings love that storyline? I think it's some I think it's in our DNA. That we love the Cinderella story. I think it's in our DNA because we are wired to recognize and appreciate the grace of God, the ultimate Cinderella story. Except the description I just gave of the Cinderella story falls short, right? Because number one, we're way worse than like the poor downtrodden woman. We're sinners. We're like the abandoned child here. That's who we were. And God, right, has no character flaw to overcome as he demonstrates his love for us. So it's really like the Cinderella story on steroids, right, and beyond. God, in his great love, notices a sinful person or nation, abandoned, neglected, no hope of anything, of any life, and God notices that person and nurtures them to maturity. But wait, it gets better. Verse 8, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Not only did God notice this abandoned baby and cause it to live and cause her to uh, grow and thrive into a beautiful young woman, God then married her. And we see throughout the Old Testament that the nation of Israel is pictured as uh, the bride, and God is pictured as the groom. And in the New Testament, we follow that analogy. It does not mean that the church has replaced Israel, but in, in lots of other ways. But in the context of the, of the parable, we do see that played out in both the Old and New Testament. In the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, right? God is, is likened to the groom, and the church is likened to the bride. And so this very uh, intense relationship is what we see demonstrated throughout the scripture. All right? And so he carries this on. So not only did he um, rescue this helpless child and nurture her to become a beautiful woman, he then marries her. Verse 9, then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. I got to just read this. So God takes this bride 
and he washes her. Right? He washes her. What is Ephesians chapter 5? I hope you all know this, men. What does Ephesians chapter 5 tell husbands in this context? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might not that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish God's heart for husbands is to nurture their wives by the washing of the word of God simple as that that's a command given to husbands and it's demonstrated by the example of God washing the bride. And so here back in Ezekiel, he says, I washed you in water, and then I anointed you with oil. We know that oil throughout the scripture is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So God gives, gives us his Holy Spirit. He washes us with the word, and it's a beautiful picture. Verse 10, I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through, this, through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. So check this out. This nation, and you could say us as well, it applies to us, but this nation was abandoned, rejected, uncared for, left to die. God notices that baby. God causes that baby to live. God causes that lady to become a beautiful woman. God then marries her. And he doesn't even stop there because God is God. His bride now is a queen. Right? God brings, God brings the full spectrum from abandoned baby to royalty. And all of the rights and privileges involved in that. You see this? That's us. That's us. Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 1 through 14 are a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful description of what God does for us. Wouldn't it be awesome if that was the end of the chapter? What's your Bible say there in the first word of, of verse 15? But... Oh, it's going to get bad. Because that'd be a great place for us to stop, wouldn't it? Wouldn't we all love to stop at verse 14 as being the bride of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Guess what? We can choose that for ourselves. We can choose that for ourselves. But for the rest of these verses, we have a warning demonstrated previously by the nation of Israel and demonstrated throughout history by what we call human nature, and probably demonstrated by us in some sort of a way throughout, throughout time. And we would do well to take this warning. Verse 15. 
but you trusted in your own beauty. Anybody ever done that? Like, I'm not talking about physical beauty now, right? But God makes us into something that we weren't, right? We recognize that we're sinners saved by grace. We recognize that, that while we were dead in trespass, while we, were, while we were dead, that's when Christ died for us. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But God demonstrated his own love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We know that in our minds. We live that. We embrace that as Christians. God made us go from scumbag to royalty. But too often, in our, some of our daily decisions, some of our daily choices, some of our daily sowing and reaping, some of our daily giving and taking, too often we start to think there's something kind of cool about us. We forget that we were the abandoned baby. We forget that we were sinners now saved by grace. We think that there was something special about us that deserved it. We get a little bit entitled, and we have to be super, super careful about that. But you trusted in your own beauty, verse 15, and then you played the harlot because of your fame and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. But you, you took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. And so uh, the butt is a terrible transition. She somehow recognizes her beauty, she forgets her humility, and she becomes entitled. Let me just say that's the first step in a downward, downward spiral. We must be very careful to avoid any of that mindset. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. There is nothing good in me. There is nothing good in me. Can we really say that? There is nothing good in me. And so we don't deserve any of the grace God has given us, but it puts us all in the same playing field, right? Verse 17, you've also taken your beauty, your beautiful jewels from my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them, also my food which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil and honey which I, which I fed you. You set it before them as sweet incense, and so it was, says the Lord God. And so here again, you took all that blessing that I gave you, and you've squandered it in harlotry. You made idols with the very raw materials that I blessed you with. You squandered the gifts that I've given you. Make no mistake about it. God has blessed us above and beyond all we can ask or think, Ephesians chapter 3. We're blessed with every, as Christians now, catch this, this is everybody who's a Christian. It's not just special Christians. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. I would argue that we don't even know what that means. We can't, we can't even give an account of 
What does every spiritual blessing in heavenly places mean? Only God can really even define that. But all we can say is we're blessed beyond measure. We're blessed beyond our understanding. So we need to be very careful, even with what we do understand, that we don't squander the blessings we've been given. We don't squander the relationship that God has blessed us with. Verse 20, Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them in the, to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your own blood. And so part of their idolatry was they worshipped one of, the, uh, one of the, the pagan idols that they worshipped was a god they called Molech. And part of that worship was child sacrifice, right? And God is very serious about that. When it, and I want you to notice this, and again, I believe this speaks to the issues of our day. Whenever God kind of outlines the sin of the nation of Israel, he always says, and basically, and you even sacrificed your children. God takes that child sacrifice. I mean, God... God spells that out on multiple occasions, and he takes it very seriously. Verse 23, Then it was so, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. So again, this is what happens when we forget the humble beginnings. This is what happened to the nation of Israel when they forgot their humble beginnings, the fact that God saved them, the fact that God rescued them, and, the, and, he, and he even points out, you also, by the way, committed your harlotry with the Egyptians. Now, we'll get to it in chapter 17, but the nation of Israel was looking for help from Egypt at that time. And so God's pointing out to them as they're con in, the, in the contemporary time that they're living with, but also again in their history. Where was the nation of Israel when they came out of what? Egypt. God blessed them when they came out of Egypt. He multiplied them and, and made them go from basically a big extended family to a nation there while they were in Egypt. And so even, you know, and the whole point was God was demonstrating, I'm taking you out of Egypt. I'm taking you out of Egypt, and that speaks to us spiritually. I'm taking you out of Egypt. I'm taking you out of the world. I'm taking you out of all that paganism. I'm taking you out of all that the world has to offer to come into the promised land, into the relationship with me. And so God says, you know, you forgot that I rescued you, that I wed you, all of this, and now you just commit harlotry and, you, and, you, and idolatry and even with these other nations. Verse 27, Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the traitor, Chaldea. And even the, then you were not satisfied. How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God. 
seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. Those are tough words. So you notice this? God brings them from abandonment to royalty. They get pompous and entitled about the beauty and the magnificence of their royalty. And so they think it's all about them. And then they begin to play the harlot. And then they uh, fall into idolatry. And then they even create all of this, this system of idolatry. And so what does a loving father do at that time? A loving husband? I mean, in this case, it's, it's God, right? He tries to get their attention by bringing discipline on them, right? Is that what parents do? right? Your child starts to wander away. You discipline them. Do you discipline them because you enjoy doing that? No, no it's painful. In many ways, it's more painful for you than it is for the child. But you discipline the child because you love the child and you want to correct the child and, and train the child in the way they should go. And so what God is saying is, you know, I stretched out my hand against you, therefore. I, I diminished your allotment. I started to, to, you know, I let the Philistines kind of mess with you a little bit. You know, you look back in those early uh, chapters of 1 Samuel, the Philistines are always messing with the Jewish people. Is it because the Jewish people are weak? No, it's because God is allowing the Philistines to come in and bring discipline. And all these various nations throughout really their history, uh, the Assyrians, uh, all these nations, the Chaldeans, that'd be the Babylonians, they're basically instruments of God's discipline. But I want you to notice this word, that's under, this sentence that's underlined, or this phrase, I guess, that's underlined in my Bible. Verse 28, because you were what? Insatiable. Insatiable. Can I just pause there for a second? Because you were insatiable. Can I just say something that I think would save us all a lot of energy, a lot of, a lot of pain and suffering in this world? And that is if we all realized and lived accordingly, myself included, that Self-indulgence is by definition insatiable. Self-indulgence is by definition insatiable. Now, how does that play out? I've seen so many people over the years, and honestly, I've had times like this. So I'm not, please, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to all of us, including me. But I know this by experience and by observation that sometimes there's a thing like maybe you have this temptation whatever it is and you say you know I bet if I just indulge that thing just maybe once or twice then the temptation will do what it'll go away does that work no. I've told the story before Tracy and I are first married, right? We live in an apartment. And when we moved from apartment to a little two-bedroom house, my life was going to be what? Perfect. Because all I wanted in life was a front porch swing and a grill on the back deck, right? The apartment, you couldn't do that. You get that house, man. Life's going to be perfect. None of you guys understand this, so I'm just going to explain it to you. My life was going to be perfect, right? Well, has anybody ever noticed that there's a better grill? Whatever grill you own today, I had a guy sell me one time. I fell for it, sorry. 
So this is the last grill you'll ever buy. Yeah, right. <laughs> Until the next one. This is the last grill you'll ever buy this year, right? Last grill you'll ever buy. I remember those words. Right? He's still a friend of mine, so that's okay. But self-indulgence, please catch this. I mean, we can make a silly example out of the grill, or we can get a lot more graphic. Self-indulgence is insatiable. Self-indulgence is insatiable. The flesh is never, ever, ever satisfied. What does the Scripture tell us to do with our flesh? Mortify it. Kill it. Now, we can't, you know, physically kill our flesh. That'd be awkward, right? But the flesh and the Spirit are at enmity with one another, right? And we need to call it what it is. I would encourage you, if, if Galatians chapter 5, the, the works of the flesh are all of these nasty things. And the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We need to walk in the Spirit. And furthermore, he tells us, walk in the Spirit, and you what? Shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, Galatians tells us. So please just know this. That lie, because I think we could probably all resonate with it, there's a lie that comes from the pit of hell, and that is, well, if I just indulge it a little bit, that temptation's going to go away. No. 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 Not at all. He says, because you were insatiable. Verse 31, you erected your shrine at the head of every road, built your high place in every street. You were not like a harlot because you scorned payment. You are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to all harlots, but you made your payments to all your lovers and hired them to come to you from all around your harlot for your harlotry. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a, a, a harlot. In that you gave payment, but no payment was given you. Therefore, you are the opposite. So this is getting pretty graphic now. So you're worse than a harlot. Harlot usually receives money for those services. In this case, you pay for it, right? God is driving a point home. Verse 35, Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with your lovers and, and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children which you gave them, surely therefore I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them from all around you and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who break wedlock and shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. I will also give you into their hand and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry and leave you naked and bare. So the irony here is God said, I'm going to have to bring so much punishment that even these, these nations that you've played the harlot with, they're going to be the ones that are going to come in and destroy your idolatry. It's a, it's a, it's a tragic paradox that the nations that Israel adopted their pagan ways they're going to be the instruments. They're going to come in and destroy the nation of Israel and Judah. Verse 40. 
they also they shall also bring up an assembly against you and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords they shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women and I will make you cease playing the harlot and you shall no longer hire lovers so I will lay to rest my fury toward you and my jealousy shall depart from you I will be quiet and angry no more because you did not remember the days of your youth but agitated me with all these things surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God, and you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all your abominations. And so God says, I have to deal with it one way or the other. Verse 44, indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs like, will use this proverb against you, like mother, like daughter. You are your mother's daughter, loathing husband and children, and you are the sister of your sisters who loathe their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Your elder sister is Samaria. Now, 10-second history lesson. You recall after the days of Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided into, into two, into the northern kingdom, Jerus uh, northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Ju uh, Judah. And the capital of the northern kingdom was the city of Samaria. The capital of the southern kingdom was the city of Jerusalem. And so often we'll hear like Samaria is really a reference to the northern kingdom. Okay, to the northern ten tribes of Israel. And, the, ref, and the, the reference Jerusalem often is used to encompass Judah. So he's saying your elder sister is Samaria, really a picture of the northern kingdom of Israel, who dwells with her daughters to the north of you. Your younger sister, who dwells to the south of you, is Sodom and her daughters. You did not walk in their ways, nor act according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. So again, back to the Jewish mindset of the time right here. They thought they were pompous. They thought they were better than the northern kingdom that got picked off by the Assyrians 150 years prior. Well, God obviously brought judgment to them because they're, they're not as spiritual as we are. We can still worship God and worship all these other pagan nations and, and in a sense, play the harlot. And we can get away with it because we've been able to get away with it for 150 years since the Assyrians took off the northern kingdom. But God says, no, you're worse than they are. Well, we're better than Sodom, who got destroyed, right? All the way back in the book of Genesis. God says, no, you're no better than they are. So if God wiped out the Assyrians, or, or if God scattered the northern kingdom by the hand of the Assyrians, and God destroyed Sodom with fire and brimstone, and these guys are worse than they were, what's the logical conclusion? Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And we can't, one of the pieces of getting entitled in our own lives and living beyond the first 14 verses of this chapter, one of the pieces is we think, well, that'll never happen to me. God will never punish me. God will never judge me. God will never, God doesn't really hold account that way. How could a loving God do that? We hear this all the time. How could a loving God judge sin? Well, because he's loving and just. Yeah. Verse 48, As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. You guys are worse. You guys are worse. Look, verse 49, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Now I want you to notice this. Okay, we know from the book of Genesis, remember when Lot went into Sodom, right? And the, the men of Sodom, it was a horrible story, right? The men of Sodom 
uh, wanted to violate Lot and his family, right? And it was horrible. It's one of the ugliest scenes in the entire Bible, right? And in my mind, I think that was the sin of Sodom, right? The sin of Sodom is those guys wanted to beat down the door and commit despicable acts. Notice this, please. This is the sin, iniquity of your sister Sodom. Verse 49. She had, she and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Now you say, wait a minute. The sin of Sodom was sexual immorality. It was, for sure. Can't take that away. But can you see where that sin starts? You see the root of that sin? Pride. Pride's the root of every sin. What's pride? Pride is I know better than God. I know better than God what's right for me. That has all kinds of social connotations right now. Right? I know better than God how to run my life. I know better than God how to live. I know better than God everything. That's called pride. Pride, fullness of food. Okay, so we're a wealthy nation. All right? Just don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. Abundance of idleness. So, you know, we don't have to grind our wheat like they did back in the day. Don't take it for granted. And neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Don't neglect the poor and the needy. And it's fascinating to me that this is the starting point of a nation that got so depraved as the city of Sodom. So depraved. And they were haughty and they committed abomination for me. And therefore I dealt with them, God says. Be careful that we don't become pompous. That we don't think one sin is worse than the other because really it all stems from pride and arrogance and haughtiness and thinking that we know more than God does. Be careful. Verse 51, Samaria did not commit half of your sins, but you've multiplied your abominations more than they and have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you've done. You have... you who judged your sisters, bear your own shame also, because the sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. Yes, be disgraced also and bear your own shame, because you justified your sisters. So don't think you're any better than anybody else. Verse 53, when I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters, and the captives of Samaria and her daughters, then I will also Bring back the captives of your captivity among them that you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. When your sisters Sodom and her daughters return to their former state and Samaria and her daughters return to their former state, then you and your daughters will return to your former state. For your sister Sodom was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered. It was like the time of the reproach of the daughters of Syria and all those around her and of the daughters of the Philistines who despise you everywhere. 
You have paid for your lewdness and your abominations, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despise the oath by breaking my covenant. And so here God is going to restore Sodom. He's going to restore Samaria and he's going to restore Judah. So we know historically after Judah was captive for 70 years in Babylon, they were brought back. They were restored in a sense. But Samaria and Sodom certainly haven't been restored fully. And so this verse is, this passage is one that was partially fulfilled historically, but is yet to be fulfilled in the end times. Nevertheless, verse 60, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters. For I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Notice how many times we've, we've read that. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. That you may remember me and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provoke you to atonement, provo provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. Now, the shame is a poor translation. It's really your humility in a sense, right? When God, God doesn't operate by shaming his children. God disciplines his children to bring them in humility and restore them. God always desires to restore. God wants to restore us so much that he sent his son to die on a cross for our restoration. That's how motivated he is by love to restore us. We'll do chapter 17 next week. All right? Come on. Come on. Is that all you got? I should, I should do chapter 17 just to... <laughs> yeah, I should read chapter 17 just to... Yeah, right. I won't do that. I don't do that. I don't, I don't operate that way. All right. Huh? So you disappointed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I won't ask for a sh for a vote. Okay, yeah, maybe that's a maybe that is it. Aw, we're not doing seventeen. I don't have anything planned this afternoon. We could do eighteen. No. Listen, I'd like to pull this together. Don't forget. Don't forget. Please don't forget where we started in this life. We are, spiritually speaking, very well described by the picture of an abandoned, helpless, left for dead child. That's who we were. And it is shameful for us to live and act as if we're entitled to anything on our own. We can't go there. We can't go there. Our lives must stop at the point of appreciation for all that God has done. 
and not to move forward into that entitlement like I deserve something or there's something special about me, right? I mean, if I was literally royalty, like if I were literally the prince, I have to admit, there'd be something in me that'd be like, yeah, I'm kind of cool. And I think we all need to acknowledge that a little bit. And I think we all need to live with that awareness of where we came from. And it's healthy to be reminded of it. Ephesians chapter 2, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We, the New Testament corollary, we were dead in trespasses and sins. And he brought us to a point that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Before when? Before the foundation of time, that we should walk in them. That's where we should walk. That's where we should walk. Don't walk in pride. Don't walk in entitlement. Don't walk in arrogance. When, when he does bring us a Philistine or two, recognize that as the discipline of God and respond with repentance. When he does warn us from the pages of history, don't think we're going to be somehow exempt. We need to recognize that God is God. And he loves his children. He loves to have fellowship with his children. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much. That you did all that was required to have fellowship with us. That you love us that much. And that your heart breaks when we neglect you or walk away from you or try to satisfy our flesh apart from you. Lord, we don't want to break your heart. But we are very grateful for who you are. Help us to appreciate and enjoy fellowship with you day by day, moment by moment. Please have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.